right, if you will, turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses this morning and revisit a, a sermon that we preached almost completely through the book of 1 Peter about five years ago. And there was a sermon that, um, I don't often do this, but I I do want to do this this morning uh, to re-preach something that I've preached before. This is uh, kind of 2.0 version of the original sermon. And that was the title of the original sermon, which is the title of today's sermon, is called uh, Horrific Christianity. Horrific Christianity. I don't know how much you thought about this or not, but your life hasn't worked out according to your plan. Last week didn't work out according to your plan. And from the look of some of us this morning, today didn't work out according to our plan. Your story is being written, but by someone else. I know that your life hasn't worked according to your plan. And I know another thing, that you're trying to figure out, that you're trying to figure your life out. And the reason is is because it's an intensely human activity. Even one that Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, tells us that man uh, is in pursuit of. Everyone in this room, whether you realize it or not, is a theologian. Everyone in this room is a philosopher. Everyone in this room is an archaeologist who digs through the mound of his existence or her existence in order to make sense out of his or her world. Maybe the most significant question for a believer is this. What in the world is God doing? You ever ask God that? What in the world are you up to? What in the world are you doing? Right here, right now, in my life. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a moment in your life, an experience in your life that you just couldn't make sense of? And you wondered what God was doing in that moment? You ever had that moment where it seemed like God was extremely distant? His plans were unclear? Were you in a moment that you thought you would never be in? And you say in that moment, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, what is this all about? I thought you were love. I thought you were mercy. I thought you were grace. God, I don't understand. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You cannot make sense of that moment without eternity. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God of our Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You cannot make sense of that moment or any moment in your life without eternity. It's impossible. And this is the, uh, um, uh, the confusion that we often find ourselves in, is that we're trying to take a moment in time, in our life, a singular event, and we're trying to interpret that based on present circumstances, and we totally disregard eternity. Now, let me help that make sense to us this morning. It is only from the perspective of eternity that those dark moments, those painful moments, those moments of despondency, aloneness, surprise, and discouragement become moments of grace and glory and moments of rest. It is only when I look at them from the vantage point of eternity that those moments get transformed into something different. Peter, this book of 1 Peter is being written to a group of people that are in the midst of deep suffering. And isn't it interesting that when Peter writes to those who are in deep suffering, he writes to them the gospel. You see, Peter's words are beautifully balanced between uncomfortable honesty, if we read the whole book, the kind of honesty that literally makes you squirm, and comforting hopefulness. This moment in time, these moments that we experience in our lives, this moment in time that of the people that Peter is writing to, it is an abstract. This is not a unique moment. It's not a moment cut off from other moments in history. This moment that you're in is connected to the historical plan of God. Now listen, you've got to get this this morning if you're going to be able to understand to some degree that you can understand what God is doing in any and every moment of your life. Every, listen, every moment of your life is connected to the historical plan of God. It is connected to the future plan of God. You must never isolate or separate yourself from God's plan. You will never understand the present work of God, the present grace of God, the present plan of God when you detach it from the whole plan of redemption. 
First Peter aims to help Christians understand what in the world God is doing and why in the world He's doing it. He begins by embedding His teaching in the past and in the future. Now, His real focus is on the here and now. However, He's got to attach, for, uh, attach us to the past and to the future if we're going to understand the here and now. This is what theologians call theological connectivity. You can't ever view a moment in your life as disconnected from the larger plan of God. It is vital that you live in this realm of theological connectivity. And let me show you this. Let's look at verse 3. Blessed be the God of our Father. Blessed be God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, watch, it's highlighted there in blue, He has caused us to be born again. Now, these words are more than celebratory. They are observatory. Don't you understand, this is what He said, don't you understand that you've been born again? What an amazing event, right? The fact that you have been born again. Peter is celebrating the wonder of new birth. He is doing that, but, I mean, the new birth, the gracious act by which God breathes spiritual life into your dead spirit. Yet he's saying so much more than just, hey, let's celebrate we've been born again. He, observe, he is observing everything that has occurred from before the foundation of the world until now. Now look, notice, and you say, well, how do, how do you get that? How, how do you know that he is talking about so much more than just our right now born-again experience? How can you say that he's attaching that to the, to the whole history of redemption? It's right there. According to his great mercy. You see, God harnessed the forces of nature. He controlled the events of human history because he's marching this broken world to this point where the Son of God would come, live a perfect life, die an acceptable death, rise and conquer death, so that you would know new birth. Now watch this. All of history has been marching towards the grace of new birth. And that history, if you're a Christian, is your history. Listen, when you read the Old Testament, you're, you're not just reading the dusty details of saints of the past. You are reading your spiritual biography. Because every judge and every king and every situation, every provision, every victory, every prophecy was for you. Because God had chosen to work history so that at some point in time... You would receive new birth. Hey, listen. Let me help us because let me let, let me help us out this morning. Think back to the day that you were saved, whenever that was. For me, that's now some thirty-six years ago. I was ten years old. Everything that God had been doing from getting my parents together to bring me into this world 
to the point of my salvation, everything that God had been doing in my life had been working to that point of new birth. And it began even before the world was created. How long had God been thinking about my salvation? Before He created the world. How long had God been planning and organizing and orchestrating your salvation before the world had began? Let me ask you a question. Anybody ever planned something so grand before in your life? Anyone ever gone to such great lengths and details and organization and planning to bring about something in your life? I dare say nothing in this world can compete with what God had planned organized and carried out than the moment of your salvation. Listen, if that doesn't excite you in this morning, I got nothing else. If that doesn't make you want to jump out of the stands into bushes and make a fool of yourself, I got nothing else. Those two poor ladies from Auburn will forever be a mockery. How in the world they thought they could pull off what they were trying to pull off is beyond me. And then he looks to, to the then of the future. Okay? He's gonna, so he's looking at the then of the past, what God did back then. Now he's going to look to the then of the future so he can help us to understand the then of the now. So look down in, uh, let's see here. Yeah, look down to verse 4. <clears throat> to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You should probably underline, highlight that, circle that in your Bible. Who, by God's power, are being guarded. There's another word should be highlighted in your Bible. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have a spiritual trust fund that cannot be touched. Anybody in here got a retirement fund? Does, does anybody in here watch the stock market incessantly and watch your retirement fund to see how it's doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Some people are that obsessive. Some people just every now and then. Some people only when their quarterly statement comes in the mail. You're wondering how those who are managing your retirement money are really doing. Some of you, your, your retirement is in the hands of politicians. That's scary. <laughs> That's real scary. A lot of people put their money in uh, a college fund through the state of Alabama only to realize that somewhere down the road, the money was gone. Imagine all the years of putting back. Matter of fact, Brandy had a friend and a coworker that had put back for years to send her daughter to UAB only to come to find out that the person that oversaw that trust had bankrupted it. Well, I want to tell you something. I got good news for you this morning. This trust fund can never be bankrupted. Why? 
Because a trust fund is only as good as the person overseeing the trust. As a matter of fact, let me go back. It's only good as the person that is keeping the trust. And I just want to tell you something this morning. The trust fund that God has set aside for every one of his children is kept by him in heaven. Now, can you think of a more secure place and a secure person to oversee your future inheritance? Imagine your investment person not only guarding your inheritance, but saying, I'm going to guard you. I'm going to give you the best dietitian. I'm going to give you the best physician. I'm going to give you the best security guard so that you will be healthy and well and ready to receive your inheritance when it comes due. God is just not guarding your inheritance. He's guarding you. You see, Peter is creating for us theological connectivity Because what he's interested in is now. Look at verse 6. Well, maybe I skipped verse 6. Nope. There it is. In this you rejoice, though now. So here's what, remember, here's what he's doing. Past, present, to understand now. Okay? This is what he's driving towards. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now. That's his topic of interest. And before we look at now, I want to look at verses 4 and 5 again. So just back right, or let's, verse 5, let's back up to verse 5 one more time. And look at the very end of it. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's the future. Now, let's look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the what? Look at the future, the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? So there's the future. Peter has created for us this connectivity. He is helping us to see how by looking at the past and looking at the future gives us spiritual eyes to see what's happening now. So let's go to the now. All right, look back at verse six. We're going to look at six and seven for the now. So what does he say? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. All right, so let's take a look at that. Peter uses two words to talk about life here and now. You're not going to like them, okay? Trial and test. I don't think anybody in here is looking forward to ever being on trial. And I doubt anybody in here like to be tested. But Jesus talks about, and Peter talks about, life here and now is a series of trials and testing. No one here has prayed this week, Lord, I think my life's a little too easy. Would you send some more trials my way? Anybody in here this week prayed? Lord, I really need to be more uh, holy, and so suffering is an instrument, so why don't you just send a little more suffering my way? What is it about the nature of the Redeemer that makes these words such important descriptors of what it is that God is doing here and now? Listen, if you can't answer that question, you don't understand God's present plan. And because you don't understand the present plan... You have moments where you're confused and moments where you're tempted to doubt. Anybody in here have those moments 
where you're just confused, you're, 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 you're tempted to doubt, you do doubt. And what do we doubt? We doubt God's goodness, we doubt God's power, we doubt God's love, we doubt everything about God that we know. Moments when you look over the fence and you're, tempt- you're tempted to envy the life of someone else, that's called social media today. That's how you look over in somebody else's fence. Because everybody's got a good-looking fence on social media. You just peer over into their life and look and say, gosh, why can't my life be like that? And because you don't understand what God is doing, it's very hard for you to be on God's agenda. You're on your own agenda, and you sort of wish God would get on your agenda. And because you really don't understand, because you really don't understand what God is doing. When Peter used the word test, he doesn't mean exam. You're not given a test that you somehow need to pass. He's talking about what you do with metal to refine it and purify it. Okay? Watch. When a miner digs digs metal out of the ground, he finds it in what's called an O-R-E state, an ore state. An ore is not very attractive, but if you've got jewelry hanging around your neck, or in your ears this morning, guess what? It started out as ore. That's what jewelry is in its natural state. It's ore. But ore is not very usable because ore has imperfections in it. Those imperfections rob that metal of its strength and its beauty. The metal worker knows that it would be an act of irrationality and futility to mine this metal and leave it in its ore state. It is a lot of work to get that ore out of the ground. And it would just be mind-blowing to the person bringing it out of the ground just to say, oh, here's a good old pile of ore and just leave it like that. It doesn't make any sense. So the metal metal Lurgist adds a catalytic agent and white hot heat and liquefies the metal. So boiling out of it, it's imperfections or what we would call its orism. So it reaches a higher state of strength and a higher state of beauty. When you came to when you come to Christ by His rescue and transforming grace, guess what? You got a lot of ore in you. Let's say this: you're orific. Not horrific, you're horrific. You have orism in you. And what that orism does is it robs you of your beauty and it robs you of your strength. It would make no sense whatsoever for God to mine you from the mass of humanity by his powerful transforming grace and leave you in your orism. Remember what I said? It will, how ridiculous is it that God would set up all of history to get to a point where he's going to bring you into his family, and by doing so, he's just going to leave you like you are. It is amazing that Christians somehow find it strange when they find themselves in testing and trials. We don't find it strange that God would save us, but we do find it strange that God would let this, these trials and these tribulations and these testings come into our life, that God would so to speak, that he would put us in the pot and boil us. He would put us under this extreme heat. He would put us through these extreme difficulties. 
If he has set up all of history to bring you to faith, then why in the world would he leave you like you are? Because let me just ask you this question. How many of you, the moment you got saved, started acting 100% like Jesus? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever worked really, 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 really hard at planning something? I mean, you just went out of your way to plan something. God has went out of his way to plan something. And so if he went so far out of his way to plan something and then make sure that everything happens, why in the world would he not finish what he started? Because bringing you to faith is not the end. It is the beginning. God could not possibly be a faithful redeemer and leave you in that state. So God in the grandeur and glory of his relentless love, he'll put you in the fire. He'll boil you. Here's the principle. You might want to write this down. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you haven't intended to go. Remember what I told you last week? We read from C.S. Lewis that our expectations of God are far too low. We're we're okay with some little shanty, some little shack, some little just nice, well-built home. And you remember what Lewis said? God wants to come in and he wants to start knocking down walls and adding on and doing this and doing that. Why? Because he has some big grand picture of what he wants to do. Our thoughts of God are way too small. Our thoughts of what God wants to do in our life are way too small. And God is going to take you where you haven't intended to go. And you may think where you want to go is a great place. But trust me, where God wants to take you is far greater than anything that you could imagine or conjure or come up with. In order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what that's called? (laughs) Grace. God giving you something you don't deserve. God knows how sturdy our self-righteousness is. He knows how reliant we are on our own strength and wisdom. He knows how attracted we are to the things of the world. He knows how easily satisfied we are, thinking we're grace graduates when we're not. He knows how much we can shift the blame and make excuses, how much we're able to swindle ourselves. And so in grace... He will take us beyond our wisdom, beyond our strength, beyond our plan, beyond our righteousness to places we would not have ever chosen to go so that we do the one thing we desperately need to do. We reach out in our hands of helplessness and hope and hope and say, I need your grace because grace is only for, listen, the broken Grace is only for the weak. Grace is only for the poor. Grace is only for the disease. Grace is only for the sinners. And unless you're there, you don't desire grace. God wants you there. Those moments of desperation are not God forgetting the plan 
or God ignoring the plan, or, some, or something's in the way of the plan, those moments of desperation are the plan. Huh? The moments of desperation are the plan. Quit saying, God, quit. Why are you interrupting my plan? Why, why are you forgetting about my plan? Why are you not helping with me with my plan? And God is saying, I am taking you to desperation because it is the plan. Because we got to get you off your plan. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, we better quit naming those moments as signs of God's unfaithfulness and inattention. Because if you're God's child, those moments are sure signs that he loves you. Those moments are not God moving away, but the faithful, ever-present Redeemer moving closer in. We need to teach, admonish, and encourage and comfort one another with the theology of uncomfortable grace because this side of eternity, God's grace often comes to us in uncomfortable forms. We spent most of our time asking the we spend most of our time asking for what I call the grace of release or we seek the grace of relief when what we really need is the grace of refinement. Quit seeking the grace of relief. Quit asking for the grace of release and embrace the grace of refinement. There is coming a day of relief and release, but for now, we need refinement. Let me, let me do a quick sidebar here. How many, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, God doesn't, God doesn't make junk? Y'all ever heard that phrase before? God doesn't make junk. The first two people that God made were absolutely, totally perfect and without blemish. But listen, if we were born, and here's what we're saying, because God doesn't make junk, we're all okay. We're all okay. We're born okay. We're born into this world with the right disposition. We're, we're born okay. If that were the case, then why does God say you need to be born again? Because you weren't born right the first time. Think about it. The reason why the Bible says you must be born again is because you weren't born right the first time. Listen, and if you weren't born right the first time, when you get born again, it just begins the process of taking you to where God wants you to be, and that is where we were when God created the first two human beings. Back to perfection. Back to sinlessness. Listen, don't treat your moments of difficulty, of trial and and, and testing as, as a moment of, of destination. The purpose of the moment is not, is not for it to be as comfortable as it could possibly be. God is, at, God is not actually working so that you would wake up every morning with a big smile on your face saying, I love life. That's not what he's doing because there is in you a greater need than that. There is orism. You see, the event is not a destination, but preparation for a final destination. To me, this is the most important thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to say to you all morning, right there. 
If you don't write anything down, you should write that down. That was worth the cost of admission this morning. So if so, the trial and the testing, that's not the destination. Okay, that's preparation for a final destination. See, you are being prepared. You, a Christian, are being prepared for what? Why the trial? Why the testing? To be a person that God chooses to spend eternity with. The next time you ask yourself, why in the world am I going through all of this? Why does it hurt so bad? Why is it so painful? God, why? If you're a Christian, remind yourself of that God is oaring out of me. He is pulling the ore out of me. Why? Because I am a person for whatever reason, and it's grace, that's the reason, that God has chosen to spend eternity with. And I can't spend eternity with Him like I am right now. Right? You just admitted that when you got saved, you wasn't 100%, you didn't act 100% like Jesus. So if you're not 100% like Jesus, you can't get into heaven. Okay? So what, it, what is it? Now begins the process of making you 1% at a time, maybe a quarter percent at a time, maybe a tenth of a percent at a time, more like Jesus. And then one day when you die, wherever you are, 50%, then when you die and you go before the Father, He will, he will finish you off. He will add the last whatever percent is needed. But what he is doing right now is making you more and more into the person that you will be when you spend eternity with him. That's what he's doing. That's what it's all about. The only kind of people that God wants to spend eternity with is people that are 100% like him. That's it. That's the only kind of people that get to spend eternity with him. Now, let's try to finish up here. Back to verse 7. Look at that word highlighted, the phrase, in praise and glory. You know why we struggle with trials and testing? Because we think our life is about our glory, the glory of our good decisions, the, the, that plan of our life, the glory of our good decisions that plan our life without problems, the glory of comfort, the glory of pleasure, the glory of success, the glory of acceptance, the glory of achievement. We want to bask in all of those physical, temporal, created glories. We would rather have momentary glory than to be part of the larger glory of God. And so when God challenges those glories, we are very often tempted to question His faithfulness, His goodness, and His love. But let's be honest for a moment. When was the last time you brought God into the courtroom of your judgment? When was the last time you really questioned whether he was faithful, wise, good, and true? When was the last time you looked over the fence and envied someone else's life who seemed to be having it easier than you? That is all motivated by self-glory. You're never, you will never understand what God is doing unless you understand there's a glory war going on on the turf of your heart. 
And God is zealous to deliver you and me from our obsessions with our own glory so that we will be caught up in the only glory that will ever satisfy our hearts, the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of us are so focused on making sure that here and now is easy, predictable, comfortable, and as pleasurable as it is. How many of you spend most of your life trying to do that? Making life easy, predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable as, as it can be. You have no ability to take the glory of uncomfortable grace because the one thing you have determined is my life will not be uncomfortable. Well, if, if, if you are there, you're not on God's agenda. Again, let me remind you, he will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Christ has a plan for us that is more glorious than anything we could ever desire for ourselves. Let's look at verse 8. We've got 8 and 9, and then we're done. It says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you, have not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Isn't it amazing that one of the most powerful acts of grace of the Lord Jesus is that he plants in our hearts the love of God? You see what he says? Though you've not seen him, you love him. Sinful human beings aren't innately motivated to love God. The DNA of sin is selfishness, and the idol of idols is the idol of self. If there is love in your heart this, uh, this morning for God, it is because he has visited you by his transforming grace. And then look what it says. And he says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Here's what he's saying. You can have deep and abiding joy in, even in the moment of trial and test and grief because you understand that trial is delivering you to, delivering you to you the one thing your heart craves, the salvation of your souls. You're getting what you prayed for. Remember what I tried to teach you for 11 and a half years? Is that salvation is not a one-time event. There is a one-time event called justification where God delivers you from the penalty of sin. But remember what's going on right now is you are still in the process of salvation because you are now being saved from the power of sin. And then one day there's glorification where you'll be saved from the presence of sin. And I can think of no better way to illustrate this to you this morning than a song that we haven't sung in a, in a good while. There's only two songs in the world worth singing, in my opinion, okay? Two songs in the world worth singing. The first song that are really two songs that every Christian should know. Song number one is Amazing Grace, because you need to know and remember how you were saved from sin's penalty. But the second one is written by the same guy, John Newton, and this is how it goes. So look at these words and listen. This is, a, this, this is the second greatest song ever written. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace to more of his salvation know, are you catching it? And seek more earnestly his face. How many of y'all like that? That's good, right? You'd even say that. That's, that's what I, I want to grow. In faith and love and every grace, more of his salvation to know. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. 
and by love's constraining power, subdue my sin and give me rest. Everybody good with that? Y'all like that? That's good stuff, isn't it? Look at verse 3. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. No, hold on now. That, no, let's go back. That's, you know, if, if this, if Baptists sung this song, it's, it's six verses. <laughs> Y'all know what Baptists do, right? We only sing the verses we like. First, second, and last verse. Let's sing that. And we'd leave this part out. Watch. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, doomed all my fair designs. I scheme, capsized my heart, and laid me low. <laughs> yep, that's verse 4. We skip it, right? Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, without pursue thine own to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied. Watch, I answered prayer for grace and faith. You see what he's saying? He made his prayer in verse 1 and 2. God answers in 3 and 4. But God answers in a way that we don't often think this is God answering my prayer. Now watch. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thine all in me. Why is he doing what he's doing? He's got to break the grip. Why? Because he desires to set you. Look, he didn't plan all of eternity to bring you to faith, to leave you in that sorry state that he found you in. He loves you too much. Look back at verse 7 at the end. So that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have been given spiritual life for the glory of another. God has orchestrated your salvation, not for your glory, but for the glory of another. And then in verse 9, he says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The purpose of trials and testing is the salvation of your souls. Peter says, don't you know in the dark moments what is happening? You're getting what you prayed for, your salvation. You are being saved. You, you have been saved. And yes, you will be saved. But right now you are being saved. Brothers and sisters, I mean this. When you're going through those moments, when you're marching through that kind of confusion... Darkness and disappointment. You will need to start saying to yourself, listen, I am saved. I, I am being saved. <laughs> I will be saved. I am saved. I am being saved. Why? Because one day I will be saved. You remember what I told you? Past, I was saved. God has orchestrated all of human history, to bring me to himself. I am being saved. God is employing all of these trials and these testings to do what? To bring me to my ultimate salvation. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. 
So remember, when you enter into trial and testing, know it, you're there because I have been saved. I am there because I am being saved. And I am here because I will one day be saved. You are a person that is being prepared to spend eternity with God. Why? Because the only person that can spend eternity with God are people that are like God. And that's what He's doing. So this morning, you know, maybe right now all is good in your life. Maybe there's no questions. Maybe there's no difficulties. Maybe there's no trials. Maybe there's no testing right now in your life. But listen, don't take too deep a breath. Because one is lurking, if you're a Christian, just around the corner. It's waiting on you. Why? Because you haven't arrived. You haven't been completed. There's still work in you to be done. And listen, know this. As long as you are not living 100% of the time like Christ, then know this. Trials and testing are a must in your life. Listen. You should not breathe a sigh of relief when testing and trials are not around. You should look around and be worried when trials and testings aren't there. Why? Because, listen, you're not going to be made more like Jesus when everything is great. You can only be made more like Jesus in the fire, in the testing, in the trial. It's the only way. Let's pray. Father in heaven this morning, if there is someone or more than one that is here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they've never even had the experience of salvation. And Father, I just pray that you would just speak to their heart at this moment and let them know that, they have, that you have been working the entirety of their life to bring them to this moment so that they could hear the gospel. So that they can know that you sent your son to earth in their place to die for their sin. So that the punishment that do them could be done away with. And that everything that Christ has can be theirs because Christ became what they could not become. And Father, I just pray this morning that that reality would sink deep into their hearts and that by faith, they would just simply reach out to you and say, Lord, I can't believe you do all this for me, to bring me to you, but I am grateful. Forgive me of my sin. I bow my knee to you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And Father, there are many in this room that have made professions of faith that say that that is what they have done in their life. And yet many of us have struggled up and down spiritually, questioning you, calling you on the carpet, putting you uh, on trial for not working life out like we wanted. And yet the whole time you were doing something much bigger, much greater, much grander than we could have ever planned for our own life. And instead of just bowing and worshiping you, 
and knowing that you put your people in the fire, in the pot, that, that you're all about boiling out that ore so that you can make us into the treasure that you have called us. And you are making us into a people that you plan to spend eternity with. Father, I pray in these moments ahead that you would just bring on us a sweet spirit of brokenness and repentance and gratefulness for all that you've done for us. And then, Father, as we, as those who choose to go to your table this morning to partake of the body and the blood, that as they go, they would be reminded of the extent that you entered into history to make us a people that could live with you and be with you for all of eternity. Father, do your work in these moments ahead in Christ's name. Amen. Once you stand, once you sing with us this morning. We've got uh, four.